0: This week's episode is brought to you by Studio Sweden. Studio is out to revolutionize the way in which people use headphones by removing the choice between a pair that looks good and a pair that works well. They produce stylish headphones with great sound quality at a fraction of the cost of their competitors while maintaining a sleek and stylish look. I personally use a pair of their Trey headphones for my bus commute and I love them. Whether it's catching up on my own podcasts on the way to work or using them at the gym to burn off a little steam after class, they're fantastic. Plus, they come with a nifty little leather bag to protect them. Studio is offering listeners of the show 15% off their order with the coupon code CHAPAN. So head on over to studiosweden.com. That's S U D I O S W E D E N.com and check them out today. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 238, Hell is Empty. So, I've been putting this one off for a while. Not because I think it isn't important, but because the subject matter is so incredibly heartrending to write about. Historians don't, as a rule, like to throw out words like evil. We don't generally see it as our role to make objective ethical judgments, but to make arguments and leave it to our readers, or listeners, to make those judgments themselves. And yet, I have a hard time of thinking of something like Unit 731 as anything other than objectively evil. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, why did Japan have a biowarfare program? Well, as a concept, biological warfare is actually pretty old, and that makes a lot of sense. Armies have always struggled with disease. Large numbers of people in close proximity in conditions that don't lend themselves to good hygiene. It's no wonder that in many of humanity's historical conflicts, disease was almost as deadly or even deadlier than the enemy. The idea of harnessing disease to unleash against the enemy is thus a very natural one. It presents less risk to your forces than a battle, and lets you decimate the opposition before you even fight. Attempts to do just that date back a long time. In the Middle Ages, the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, supposedly poisoned wells by chucking corpses into them. And in 1346, when Mongol forces in Ukraine hurled the bodies of plague victims over the walls of the city of Kaffa, modern Theodosia, while laying siege to conquer it from Genoa, fleeing Genoese, who'd been exposed to the plague, ended up bringing it back to Europe, thus the Black Death. But instances like Kaffa, where disease could be harnessed in that way, were relatively few and far between before the Industrial Revolution. Handling diseased bodies was often, after all, just as much a risk to your side as the other. However, the 19th century saw advances in germ theory, and thus understanding what actually caused disease, and in industrial technologies that would allow for the mass growth of bacteria and viruses, with safety procedures limiting the chance for friendly fire, so to speak. Thus, the potential for modern biological warfare was born, and it was applied for the first time in the first great war of the 20th century, World War I. In a war where they were outmatched by the mighty empires of Britain and France, and literally right next to the seemingly endless manpower of the Russian army, the Germans attempted to use biological warfare to gain a leg up. Specifically, they attempted to target members of the Allies using anthrax, not on the battlefield, but targeting livestock. That plan was largely unsuccessful. Far more successful, to the point of becoming a sort of dark icon of the war, Were the artificial chemical agents developed in both Allied and Central Powers' laboratories and deployed on the battlefield. After World War I ended, biological and chemical weapons became iconic agents of destruction. Nothing really conjured the horror of the war more effectively than the image of this roiling, deadly fog. The post-war world saw a renewed ban on developing chemical weapons with the 1925 Geneva Protocol, which, by the way, Japan signed. Yet the potential advantage from the weapons was too great to give up, not to mention the fact that abandoning a chemical and biological weapons program meant that you would have nothing to retaliate with if your enemies did not abandon their programs. So all of the major powers continued to have some kind of weapons program, and in fact, the United States would not suspend its chemical weapons program until the 1990s. Some even made use of the weapons. For example, in 1930, Taiwanese Aboriginals rose up against Japanese rule over the island, killing 130 Japanese when they attacked a Japanese elementary school, as well as two Han Chinese. In response, Japanese occupation authorities ordered mustard gas bombs dropped on Aboriginal villages. The British, too, contemplated the use of chemical weapons against Iraqi insurgents who rose up against British rule. In the end, it was decided not to use them, not out of humanitarian concerns, but because logistically getting the weapons into place would be too challenging. So it was that early in the career of a Japanese army officer named Ishii Shido, chemical weapons and biological weapons were still considered perfectly feasible for certain situations. Ishii's career was, pretty early on, a pretty standard one. He was born in Chiba Prefecture on the outskirts of Tokyo, and went to Kyoto Imperial University, one of the most prestigious schools in Japan, to study medicine. From there, he joined the army and became an army surgeon, and impressed his superiors to such an extent that he was recommended for postgraduate training, once again at Kyoto Imperial University. The one sign there was something odd about him? He had this tendency to grow bacteria in petri dishes that he referred to as his pets, which, at the time, seemed like a perfectly harmless eccentricity. After completing his postdoctoral studies, Ishii returned to active service in 1928. This was really the defining moment of his career because he argued for, and got, a chance to go abroad to study the bacteriological and chemical weapons programs of Europe and the United States to the greatest degree that he could. Though Japan had signed the Geneva Protocol three years earlier, Ishii insisted that the army must not be bound by the instruments of civilian government an interesting echo of the same argument that was being applied to foreign policy by army officers in China. Indeed, he insisted that if other countries wanted to ban such weapons, it must not be because the weapons were inhumane or cruel, but because they were too effective and Western powers worried about non-Westerners using them to overturn the established world order. Ishii received his permission and spent two years abroad, have been unable to determine whether he proclaimed his goals openly while in the West, or if he had cover as a student of some unrelated topic. Either way, upon his return to Japan, he was promoted to major, and assigned to the Army Medical School in Tokyo. His big break came the following year. Ishii wanted to establish a laboratory for biological and chemical weapons, but either did not want to or was unable to receive permission to set it up in Japan for fear of potential contaminant issues with the weapons stored inside. However, in 1931, the renegades of the Guangdong army launched an invasion of Manchuria, and that gave Ishii the perfect place to work. The army minister at the time was General Araki Sado, a supporter of the Manchurian invasion. He was able to use his contacts within the Guangdong army to get the commander of that unit, General Honjo Shigeru, who was a disciple of Araki, on board with the program. And so it was that Major Ishii Ishiro was posted to Manchuria in 1931 in order to conduct experiments in biological warfare. He would begin his research in Zhongla Fortress, about 100 kilometers, or a bit over 60 miles, to the south of the main city of Harbin. Technically, he and his comrades were a part of the Guangdong Army's Army Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory. Their goal on paper was to protect the army from endemic disease. However, an internal unit of the laboratory, called the Togo Unit, took on Ishii's specific work on biowarfare and chemical weapons. Ishii's basic rationale for his experiments seems to have been, for lack of a better term, the mad scientist approach. What I mean by that is that scientists normally follow extremely strict ethical protocols, particularly related to human experimentation. Certain scientists have, throughout history, viewed those restrictions as stumbling blocks on scientific progress, as scientists deliberately hampering their own research by saying, we will not do this, rather than opening themselves up to any method of scientific exploration, including the most horrific ones. Ishii was unprepared to allow those stumbling blocks to hinder him, and in this, his thinking lines up pretty well with some pretty horrible company, most notably the infamous Angel of Death, Dr. Joseph Mengele. It's also important to note that there's very little to suggest this kind of experimentation actually does much to advance human knowledge. Both in the case of Ishii and of Mengele, the data acquired was either not particularly helpful or obtainable via other methods, animal experimentation, use of cadavers, that kind of stuff. After the war, there was substantial debate over what to do with the results obtained via these criminal methods. In some cases, particularly experiments related to hypothermia, the results were used. However, that's a different issue from whether the information could have been acquired by other means, and frankly it seems pretty clear it could have been. But anyway, let's get back to Manchuria. Ishii and his colleagues spent their first six years working out of Zhongma Fortress. Their charge was to gather data for developing Japan's biological and chemical weapons program, though, as we'll see, the experiments in question often had little to do with that and veered into the realm of cruelty for its own sake. The experimental subjects, which is to say, the prisoners, who Ishii tortured for his work, were culled from the local population. Anyone arrested in Manchukuo, particularly if they fell into the hands of the army-affiliated Kempeitai military police, could find themselves in Jongma. In 1934, a group of prisoners attempted to break out. Despite the substantial walls surrounding the compound, a few of them did make it outside. Ishii, worried that what he was doing had gotten out to the local populace, decided to move. In the interim, he used a hospital in Harbin, but the site was too small and too exposed for the work he wanted to do. So he arranged for the construction of a new base of operations. The new compound was in the Pingfong district of Harbin City. Arguably less secure, but prisoners were far easier to come by there, and supplies could be sent via rail or via Harbin's new airport. The compound was completed in 1937. This was also the point when Ishii's unit was reorganized into a new Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department for the Guangdong Army. Yet again, this was a cover, and a smaller unit inside the department handled actual weapons research. The Japanese army, in addition to titles, likes to number its units, and Ishii's water purification department in Harbin was labeled Dai Nanasan Ichibutai, Unit Number 731. Now, Unit 731 was not the only biological warfare unit of the Japanese army out there. A separate Unit 100, technically the Guangdong Army Military Horse Epidemic Prevention Workshop, operated just south of the city of Xinjing, modern Chongchun, and Unit 516, the Guangdong Army Technical Testing Department, focused specifically on chemical weapons from its base in Chichihar in northern Manchuria. There were further units outside of Manchuria itself, Unit 1644 in Nanjing, Unit 1855 in Beijing, Unit 8604 in Guangzhou, and eventually Unit 9420 in Singapore. Because Ishii's Pingfong team was in command of the whole program, all of these units are generally lumped under the umbrella of Unit 731, even though only Ishii's Pingfong team actually technically held that designation. At its peak, Unit 731 employed a staff of over 10,000 people, of which about half were working out of either the Pingfong site or the Army Medical College in Tokyo. Every single one of the cells of Unit 731 engaged in human experimentation, but the two sites that engaged in it the most systematically were Unit 731 itself and Unit 1644 in Nanjing. Of the two, we have U.S. Army intelligence reports on the Ping site, but not the Nanjing one, so Unit 731's experiments are better known. Technically, these experiments were classified, but hearing from members of the Guangdong Army it seems pretty clear that the secret was not well-kept. For example, in 1997, a former Kempeite officer, Yukata Mio, went public with the fact that he'd participated in shipping prisoners to Ping Fong. In an interview for the Japan Times, he told of two men who he tortured on suspicion of being high-ranking Communist Party members. After waterboarding an obviously fabricated confession out of them, he shipped them off to Ping Fong. In 1997, as part of a court case brought by the child of one of the men, Mio broke down in court during his testimony, exclaiming, I must say that what I have done should be regarded as murder, and I should be called a murderer. Now, I didn't think I could do this episode without describing in at least some detail the kind of things Unit 731's human experiments entailed. I want to warn you right now, this stuff is bad. Like, it's hard to write about, and it's probably going to sound a little choppy because I expect it will take me a few takes to even get it out loud. If you'd rather not hear it, go ahead and advance now to timestamp 1943. That's 19 minutes, 43 seconds. Okay, so. From an interview published in the New York Times with a former Unit 731 medical assistant who became a farmer after the war. He described deliberately infecting someone with the plague and then vivisecting them, without anesthetic, out of concern that would affect the results. Quote, The fellow knew it was over for him, and so he didn't struggle when they let him into the room and tied him down. But when I picked up the scalpel, that's when he began screaming. I cut him open from the chest to the stomach, and he screamed terrible, and his face was all twisted in agony. He made this unimaginable sound, he was screaming so horribly but then, finally, he stopped. This was all in a day's work for the surgeons, but it really left an impression on me because it was my first time." Another former Unit 731 officer recalled prisoners being taken outside to be exposed to poison gas to see if it would work outside closed confines, except the wind shifted in the middle of the experiment and all the observers had to run without getting the prisoners. Unit 731 research into the best treatment for frostbite required, well, prisoners with frostbite, which was induced by leaving them out in the rain. A prisoner was determined to have frostbite when, quote, their frozen arms, when struck with a short stick, emitted a sound resembling that which a board gives when it is struck, unquote. Because venereal disease was a major concern for Japanese army planners, after all it took men off active service, There were also experiments that required deliberately infecting people with the diseases. At first, an injection of the disease was used, but later, the unit turned towards forcing prisoners into intercourse. The following is an account of a Unit 731 scientist. Infection of venereal disease by injection was abandoned, and the researchers started forcing the prisoners into sexual acts with each other. Four or five unit members dressed in white laboratory clothing, completely covering the bodies with only eyes and mouth visible, handled the test. A male and female, one infected with syphilis, would be brought into a cell and forced to have sex with each other. It was made clear that anyone resisting would be shot. Unquote. Sexual assault on prisoners was not uncommon. All of this likely resulted in a great many pregnancies in the unit, but there are no records of any kids leaving the camps. Likely, either the women were forced to have abortions, or the kids were used in experiments after birth. One such experiment, I have been unable to determine to what purpose, required a three-day-old baby to keep its hand open. Doctors in the unit stuck a needle down the length of the child's middle finger to keep it from flexing, thus keeping the hand open. In addition to human experiments on site, Unit 731 also conducted something that could loosely be called research on disease outbreaks in larger populations. In October 1940, Japanese planes operating under the command of Unit 731 dropped wheat and fleas that had been exposed to the Yersinia pestis bacterium on the cities of Ningbo, Shenzhou, and Jinhua. You might know Yersinia pestis better by the name of the disease it causes, plague, as in the Black Death. In 1942, Japanese planes dropped cholera and typhoid fever cultures in water supplies to attempt to spread those diseases. This was a dismal failure. Typhoid spread not to the Chinese, but to Japanese garrison troops who used the water, and 1,700 of them died. When the war was over, the remaining Unit 731 personnel in Harbin, anxious not to be caught with their experiments for fear of being justly branded war criminals, released plague-infected animals from the compound. The result was a series of plague outbreaks in Harbin that killed at least 30,000 people. So, two things I want to note about all of this. First, as horrible as this is, it's quite possible that it was not unique to Unit 731. For example, Dr. Yuasa Ken, who was not a part of the unit, recalls working in Shanxi Province in occupied China and attending several vivisections where doctors practiced surgeries on prisoners and then killed them. He said he attended six such vivisections, mostly using captured communists provided by the police. He also cultivated typhoid for army research, likely for Unit 731, though he himself was not a member. This blatant disregard for human life was, in other words, not confined to Ishii Shiro and his immediate followers. It spread into the Japanese medical world more broadly. Second, it is possible, though not provable, that knowledge of this did percolate to higher levels. We do know for a fact that Hirohito's youngest brother, Prince Mikasa, did tour Unit 731 facilities in Pingfong, and received a briefing on the army's use of biological warfare as part of his army rank. It's also quite possible that he told Hirohito about this, though thanks to all the restrictions on accessing Hirohito's records, we can't be sure. All in all, several thousand people died at Pingfong as a result of Unit 731 experiments. We don't have data that's very good for the other sites, not to mention the difficulties of tracking deliberately unleashed epidemics like plague. Upper end estimates for Unit 731's death toll land around 200,000, but that is just a guess. We will never know precise numbers. It's also possible that at least a few of those killed were Western POWs. There are suggestions that American, British, and Dutch prisoners were taken to sites affiliated with Unit 731 and experimented on, though since none of them survived, we have no direct confirmation. All of this is horrific, and all of it counts as a crime against humanity by any definition, and yet probably the most infamous aspect of Unit 731's history is the fact that so many of its members escaped any reprisal at all. As the final days of the war began, Ishii Shiro swore all his research scientists to silence and gave them cyanide capsules if they were captured by the Chinese or Soviets. The group fled Manchuria in advance of the Red Army's invasion, though not until they attempted, often unsuccessfully owing to sturdy construction, to demolish the compound itself. On the way out, as much evidence of Unit 731's crimes as possible was destroyed. When the Americans arrived in Japan, with them came their own chemical weapons expert, Lieutenant Colonel Murray Sanders, who demanded that the defeated Japanese hand over anything they had on their own weapons research, and who threatened to hand over anyone who obstructed him to the Soviets for trial as a war criminal. The threat of Soviet justice worked, and the Japanese government quickly turned over everything. All of it was taken to Douglas MacArthur, the commander of the U.S. occupation. MacArthur, in turn, offered a deal. Total immunity for Unit 731 scientists in exchange for exclusive access to the data that had been collected. Not even other allies like China or Russia would be able to see it. I've been unable to find anything as to whether the data was shared with the United Kingdom or France, though I'd imagine that's at least likely. Shiro escaped prosecution. It's suspected, though not proven, that he went to the United States consulting on its chemical weapons program. He died of cancer in 1959, still working as a doctor in Tokyo. The Soviets actually did catch and try several members of Unit 731 for war crimes in their own separate set of war crimes trials held independently from the American-dominated ones in Tokyo. They are known as the Khabarovsk Trials after the city they took place in. Khabarovsk was, and is, the largest city of the Russian Far East, and only 30 miles from the Chinese border. Despite the highly ideological nature of the trials, lots of Soviet jargon thrown about, they did clearly establish what Unit 731 had done. The tribunal found all 12 of its defendants guilty of war crimes and sentenced them to various forms of imprisonment and hard labor, though none were executed. It's unclear if the Soviets tried to make use of captured Unit 731 members, though we do know the research the Soviet investigators found convinced Stalin to establish a new Soviet bioweapons program and to place his close ally NKVD head Levante Beria in charge of it. The trial's proceedings were translated by the Soviet Foreign Publications Office and distributed abroad, but those findings were dismissed in the West as Soviet propaganda. It wasn't really until the 1970s and 1980s that the reality of Unit 731's activities became known. First, as China entered the Deng Xiaoping period of reform and opening, more and more Chinese citizens who'd been aware of the brutal stories of Unit 731 could tell them outside of China itself. Their accounts finally made it into the foreign press. Second, reports of Unit 731's activities started to bubble up more in Japan. It had been an open secret for a while that Japan had a chemical and bioweapons program during the imperial period. Remember, that was one of the explanations advanced for the use of chemical agents during the Teikoku Ginko robbery. However, the precise nature of the crimes really started to come to light in the 1980s because one person who'd been involved in human experimentation, Dr. Yuasa Ken, whose story is recounted earlier in this episode, decided to come forward and share it. A novelist named Morimura Seiichi also released a researched work on Unit 731 in 1980, Akuma no Hoshoku, or The Gluttony of the Devil. Serialized first in Akahata, the official newspaper of the Japan Communist Party, it and its sequel were later traditionally published. Morimura did research the subject and present his findings, but was not careful about vetting his evidence and included a couple of incorrectly ID'd photos, or partially altered one, and confused Unit 731 itself with some of its subordinate groups like Unit 100. As a result, ultranationalist Japanese who didn't want to acknowledge the reality of Japan's past attacked and discredited the book, leading to confusion about how accurate Morimura was, which, generally speaking, more accurate than not. Unit 731 remains a sore spot in Japan. The Japanese government has been very careful only to apologize in general terms for crimes committed in Japan and to avoid any admissions that are too specific in their content. The Ministry of Education has also attempted to suppress inclusion of eyewitness testimony related to Unit 731 in a textbook written by left-wing historian Ianaga Saburo. The resultant lawsuit went all the way to the Japanese Supreme Court, which ruled in 1997 that Ianaga had enough evidence to support his assertions of Unit 731's activities, and that the Ministry's decision to try and have the testimony removed violated Japan's freedom of speech laws. Thanks to a government decision during the tenure of Prime Minister Koizumi Junichiro, the government is committed to publishing any data it finds in its archives related to Unit 731. In April of this very year, the Japan National Archives did release the names of over 3,000 participating Japanese citizens, thanks to a public records request. However, the subject remains underexplored in Japan. I'd be willing to bet there's still a stack of files moldering somewhere that goes into greater depth as to who participated and signed off on what when. The acts of Unit 731 absolutely rank up there with the list of the most infamous crimes of the 20th century, but what really makes the stories infamous beyond their raw horror is the fact that those involved escaped punishment for the most part. For that, we can certainly thank in part the zeitgeist of post-war Japan, a society profoundly uninterested in introspection on its unpleasant past. But of course, there's also the Western, specifically American, role to consider. MacArthur, in the end, was the one who made the decision to shield members of Unit 731. In the end, it wasn't just Ishii Shiro who believed that the ends justified the means. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we start a short series on the history of Japan's Shimazu family.